Scott, and welcome to the Green Room Podcast. Hey, Denver. How's it going? It's pretty good. How do we know each other? Uh, so we met in college at Rice University uh, about a billion years ago. <laughs> yes, what it feels like. Um, probably through our friend Ara, I would say. Yeah, I think you're probably right. Uh, and then we lived together that one summer. Yeah. Where we didn't have internet for several weeks, and so we played chess like animals <laughs> by which i mean animal chess <laughs> nice cool so uh so what do you want to share with me today yeah so i'll be talking about uh my work as a researcher looking for dark matter cool dark matter so all right so tell me a little bit about how you got into science yeah sure so um I guess since an early age, I've been really interested in science and math, probably just because I was good at it to begin with. But then uh, around high school, when I was taking physics classes, um, started learning that there's a kind of small set of rules that seems to do really well at just describing Everything, all of the fundamental interactions. Of, all of everything. Like, yeah, all, all matter. So uh, the fact that you could like learn those rules and write them down and study them and that people are still out there like trying to understand them better and that could be my job just blew my mind. So, you know, I kind of wanted... I, 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 when I was a senior in high school, I sort of had the intention of studying physics in college Mm-hmm. And um, for a brief moment there, I thought maybe I would instead be a video game designer, but that didn't happen. Yeah, <laughs> I, I stuck with it, uh, and I did. I went to grad school, um, and I've I've stayed with it since. Cool, and yeah, so you just kept going and going with that, and now you ended up at where are you doing your research now? Yeah, so uh, I'm a postdoc uh means uh, after my phd at lawrence berkeley national lab so it's in in berkeley california near san francisco so do i have to go back and record my intro and introduce you as dr scott kravitz <laughs> no that's okay okay some pe- i've met some people who are kind of insistent on that which i yeah. don't blame them honestly but uh i just want to call people what they want to be called Right. Yeah. There were a few weeks after I got my PhD where I I had everyone call me Dr. Scott. (laughs) (laughs) I'm over it now. So uh, tell us a little bit about your day to day before we get into what you're actually researching. Sure. Yeah. So um, my work is sort of a mixture of time spent in the lab doing research um, and uh, on a computer um, analyzing data and writing software um, to to simulate and analyze data. What is the Um, uh, split you would say? Well, since COVID, it's been a little more focused on software um, Mm -hmm. because there's been limited access to in-person things. But uh, if we ignore that, you know, I'd probably say it's not far from 50-50. So, you know, when I get tired of turning a wrench in the lab, I can go look at data. And when I get tired of debugging code, I can go <laughs> run an experiment. Yeah, that's very convenient. I I hate whenever I'm stuck in one thing for so long, and I'm very lucky that my job is a bunch of little problems so I can switch and jump around between them. Yeah, that's one of the things I love about my job is that, you know, it's, it's different every day. Um, so I get the chance to try out new things and, and um, grow. All right, cool. So... Big question. What is dark matter? Yeah, good, good question. So I think a lot of people have heard of it. And, you know, the name maybe makes you think that it's something sinister, like you can use it to take over (laughs) the world or something. Um, I actually like invisible. I think invisible matter is maybe a little bit more descriptive, but everyone calls it dark matter now. So it's, it's, it's stuck. But we know that there's some new type of material out there that doesn't really interact with normal everyday things like you and me. There's mm-hmm. a lot of it, way more than normal matter. If you look out um, into the galaxy uh, and, and, and you can see its gravitational effects, but because mm-hmm. it's so weakly interacting, 
it doesn't really do much to you and me day to day. So it's a total mystery still what exactly it is other than some new type of particle or maybe multiple types of particles. Okay, yeah. So how do we know that it actually exists and isn't just a bunch of physicists trying to ensure that they still have jobs? Yeah, <laughs> that's a great question. So uh, there are actually multiple independent ways that we've verified that there's this extra matter out there. Um, mm -hmm. So that's important to establishing that it's not it's not just um, one thing. It's There's several stories that all come together right. to form a whole. Yeah. So I think historically, one of the first things that pointed to this extra matter was looking at the way stars rotate in galaxies. Because anything with mass has a gravitational force, the mass in a, a galaxy is what keeps stars from flying out of their orbits. Right. Yeah, because if they were spinning around and nothing was holding them in, they should just they just keep going. Away. They wouldn't. Yeah, they wouldn't rotate around. It's like if you put a a mass on the end of a string and and spin it around, if the string right. wasn't there, it would fly off. Mm -hmm. Right. So so some astronomers were looking out there at at galaxies because what else would they have better to do? And they saw... It sounds like what astronomers ought to be doing. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of their job. Yeah, so, so what they noticed was that if you try and calculate the amount of matter in these galaxies based on what you can see, so those are things like stars... It kind of goes back to those rules you were talking about earlier. You were saying just about everything follows these rules, like some very right. basic rules. Yeah, that's right. So, so you know, these galaxies way out there should follow the gravitational rules that um, we've understood for a long time now. Mm -hmm. So they looked out and they saw that the stars were rotating around and it seemed like they were rotating faster than they had any right to be based off of how much matter you can see, basically stars and, and gas in between stars. Mm-hmm. So that means that either gravity, the theory of gravity is just totally wrong, which is a big ask, or there's extra matter out there that you can't see. So that was the origin of the term dark matter, because it doesn't light up like stars. But, okay, you know, yeah. a natural question is, well, okay, maybe, does it have to be a new type of particle? Can't you just have something that, like, doesn't shine or something mm -hmm. like that, right? So there are other yes, measurements. that is definitely the question I was about to ask. Proceed. <laughs> Great. Great. So there, there are other things that point to dark matter as well. Um, a really famous version of this is something called the bullet cluster. So you have mm. things called galaxy clusters, which if you haven't heard of them, it just blows my mind. They're... they're a bunch of galaxies that are all sort of nearby each other that kind of have a coherent motion. So these are enormous structures, but we can see them. We can see distant galaxy clusters yeah. because of those astronomers who stuck with their day jobs. So you have a bunch of stars that rotate around a point together, which is a galaxy. And then you have a yes. bunch of galaxies that come together. They kind of move, they kind of move together um yeah are they um are they rotating around something like a, a galaxy or are they just a blob or um, all sorts of different in, shapes there there's a lot of different versions of this in this case we're going to talk about two clusters that are kind of um all one of the clusters is all moving let's say to the right and the other is all moving to the left so there's mm -hmm. a, a head-on collision of these two giant structures okay um and what happens is we we have only observed because this kind of collision takes a really long time we are just sort of trillions seeing a of picture years or something. You, uh, you, maybe not trillions but yeah millions <laughs> okay. millions or, or 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 more years okay yeah so we are seeing sort of a snapshot of this collision right after it happened um it's like what you give to the uh, insurance report. 
Mm-hmm. And what, what we see is that um, the visible matter uh, has all sort of heated up um, and it, it's slowed down. So one has passed through the other and both of them are, have slowed down as a result. The way we measure that mass is essentially through looking at um, X-ray emission of the galaxy cluster. Okay. Um, but we have a second way of looking at the mass that's in the galaxy cluster, which is through something called gravitational lensing. Um, I've heard of this. Yeah. So this is something that Einstein famously shows predicted. up in my video games a lot. <laughs> nice. So, so um, Einstein predicted that any kind, anything with mass or energy um, creates a gravitational field and that warps even the path that light takes. So if you get something really heavy, then a ray of light coming near it will actually be bent around it um, instead of taking a straight line path. Oh, yeah. Um, I see that a lot with images of black holes and you can see the light yes. going all crazy around it. Yeah, if you've seen the movie Interstellar, they show this in a really extreme um, manner. Yeah. So, so, you know, black hole, really extreme version of this. But even with things less massive than a black hole... Like just um, the sun or a star. Yeah. Right, yeah. You can still get gravitational lensing. So you can use this. You can look for distortions in these images of galaxy clusters. Um, and that tells you where all of the mass is. And when you do this it turns out that most of the mass isn't actually where the x-rays are coming from. It's actually um, further out. It's as if the two clusters, the normal matter, passed through each other and slowed down, but then most of the, most of the mass actually kept going right on through. Um, most of the mass didn't slow down. Most of the mass actually didn't slow down. So norm, okay. all of the normal mass slowed down. Most of the, but most of the mass turns out to be not normal. <laughs> so the way the lensing works, you can correct me if I'm wrong. It's like yeah. you're kind of looking at two stars and then you figure out that one of them is further away than the other. And then as the light from the further away one passes the closer one, it changes where it shows up because it's being bent by the closer one. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. And so what's happening here is you're looking at gravitational lensing between stars and slash galaxies of these two galaxy superstructures. Uh, You're seeing a different amount of lensing, but not based on stars, just like kind of where there's an empty patch, it looks like. Right, yeah. So you can use the gravitational lensing to make basically a map of where the mass is. And you can use this other technique looking at the x-rays to make a map of where the, the gas stars. is. The ga- yeah. yeah, sorry, oh, yeah. the gas and the stars are the things that are being heated up by this collision. Mm-hmm. And the two maps don't, uh, don't match up. And in fact, most of the mass... Um, which you see from the gravitational lensing, looks like it went the the two clusters went right on through each other. So that's because, only possible okay. if the the dark matter doesn't interact that much with normal matter or with itself. That was the question I was going to ask. It doesn't even seem to be interacting with itself in that. Yeah, means. that's right. Yeah, so it's possible that there are very very weak interactions. Um, you know, but. Uh, more or less, it seems like it's kind of just out there floating around doing its own thing. Cool. Um, I had not heard of that experiment, but that makes a lot of sense. Um, were there other ways that we know that dark matter exists? Uh, yeah, there's at, at least one other way, um, which is you can do simulations of uh structure formation in the universe and structures are um, you can think of it as uh, mass piling up in different regions of the universe to form planets stars galaxies that sort Mm -hmm. of thing and if you have 
no dark matter um, in, in these simulations, just the normal particles that we know about, then you essentially get, um, you don't get enough clumps. The, the, <laughs> the galaxies and stars and everything sort of go, they're much more diffuse. Um, in the simulations if, or in reality? In the, yeah, in the simulations. Okay. Then, yeah, the simulations without dark matter look uh, much more spread out than what we find mm. in reality. When you add the extra dark matter, you can think of it as this extra mass that's sort of helping clump things together. Yeah. Um, You're adding a variable in that you aren't quite sure what it is, but you just see what happens and see if the model matches the map. Right, exactly. So there are sort of these three things that point to there being extra, some extra source of mass that doesn't create light and doesn't seem to really interact hardly at all with normal matter. Mm -hmm. Okay, cool. Um, that one makes a lot more sense to me based on what I already know, but that's good. Um, all right, so you're trying to figure out what this stuff is. Yeah, that's right. That's your... I don't want to say goal in life, but your job. Yeah, <laughs> that's 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 your exactly job right. for the moment. Yeah, for the past few moments. Um, some people might be wondering: Is dark matter the same as dark energy, or is there a relationship between there at all? Oh, yeah, that's a great question. I'll add another thing, which is antimatter, which sounds kind of similar. Oh, right, right, right. So, antimatter and dark matter and dark energy are actually three separate things. Right, they all just sound similar. Basically, all, physicists yeah. need to be better at naming things. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. We need a PR team. <laughs> but so uh, antimatter, we know uh, we can we can make antimatter um, in particle colliders, and in fact, um, there's something called positron emission tomography (PET) PET scans, oh, yeah, yeah. which are used routinely in medical science. So antimatter, totally a solved problem. It's just like, it's, vi it, it's very rare in nature, um, but it's basically each particle has its opposite in some sense. Mm -hmm. And um, that's the antimatter version. So the antimatter version of the electron, which is negatively charged, is the positron, which is positively charged. Makes sense. Uh, and then what about dark energy? And then dark energy, we... <laughs> Can I curse on this? Yeah. Okay. Dark energy. We don't know what the fuck it is. We're like dark matter. We know a little bit about it, but dark energy is just a total mystery to us. Mm -hmm. So it dark energy. We don't even know if, if it's like a thing. We don't know. Or, we don't have as much evidence for dark energy as for dark matter. No, no. Well, okay. So what I would say is that what we, what we've observed is that the universe is not only expanding, things are in general getting farther away from each other over time, but mm -hmm. that expansion is accelerating. It's getting faster over time. It's like something is out there pushing, pushing. all of the galaxies away from each other. And this is really bizarre. And the, the name we give to this observation is dark energy, but we don't even know it, it, if you try to put this in general relativity, it takes the form of an extra kind of energy. That's mm -hmm. why it's called dark energy, but we don't, we don't really know what it is. That makes sense. I was wondering, and then it's just dark because we can't, well, it's dark because dark matter probably existed and physics doesn't have a PR team. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I would not call it dark energy if I were in charge of naming <laughs> things. I would call it uh, the big pushy thing. The big pushy thing that <laughs> no one knows what it is. Yeah. Um, have you heard about antimatter being just particles that are moving backwards through time? Oh, yeah. So that's actually a way of thinking of antimatter that I think Richard Feynman came up with. And oh, is it? Yeah. And there is a way in which if you, if you look at the equations making something, making a normal particle go backwards through time, the equation is very similar to taking an antiparticle 
forwards through time with a, a couple of other changes. Yeah. Um, but I guess I wouldn't try to take that <laughs> similarity in the equation too literally. It's uh, you can't use antiparticles to time travel. That's for sure. Right. No, that's time travel is just not a way that it exists in most things. Right. Um, did you see the movie Tenet? God, that was confusing. Yes. <laughs> it was It was really interesting, and I spent like 30 minutes on a Reddit thread afterwards trying to figure out what the hell happened. <laughs> yeah, it is very confusing. Uh, I recorded a whole other episode of the podcast just about that movie and then decided not to use it. Um, <laughs> but part of it came up was the moving backwards through time. Right. Um, is actually just antimatter. And so like people go into the booth and then the booth turns them into antimatter and then they go backwards in time somehow yeah. while not annihilating <laughs> and also not uh, using a massive amount of energy to, to cause that to happen because the booth right. to just go bonk. Um, but yeah, yeah, I thought that was fun. <laughs> I, yeah. I actually thought it was a really interesting way of dealing with time travel. That's, that's totally different from what most stories do. So you know, I, yeah. you have to you suspend a little back. bit of you. Right. You don't just show up in the past. You have to go backwards at the same rate that you would go forwards. Right. Yeah. So I thought, you know, obviously you have to suspend some disbelief for it, but, but the way they explored that concept was really interesting. So I, yeah. I really liked it actually. It was good. All right. So you are, your main job is looking for dark matter. That's right. What do you do? <laughs> yeah, so um, I work on an experiment called Lex Zeppelin. We'll just call it LZ. Lex Zeppelin? Um, yes. Almost like the band? It's very similar to Led Zeppelin, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, it, it's a, a big experiment, um, maybe around 200 or 300 uh, scientists, depending on, you count, on how oh. you count it, working on it. Um, and it's looking for dark matter using a giant tank of something called liquid xenon. Mm-hmm. So, LZ makes sense. Yeah. Should, Wait, xenon just... spelled with an X. <laughs> yeah, it's it's confusing. So the Z in LZ is for Zeppelin, which is its own acronym it's a it's a nested acronym it's it's a mess <laughs> <laughs> okay but um let, let me tell you a little bit about the lz experiment please so i said before that we have plenty of evidence for dark matter but that's not the end of the questions about dark matter we think there's mm -hmm. a new type of particle and if that's true we should be able to detect it here on earth so mm -hmm. that's the goal of the experiment I work on, LZ, and other experiments trying to do what we call direct detection of dark matter. So the tricky thing is, I just told you before, one of the things that makes dark matter dark matter is that it really doesn't like to interact with normal matter. It's very weakly interacting. Yes, exactly. Is that, does that mean like when they come in contact or proximity to each other or does that include gravity because that's how we knew about it right gravity right so gravity is the one thing we know for sure that dark matter interacts with and the thing about gravity is that it's universal you uh you know you can have particles that carry electric charge or don't carry electric charge so you can have things that don't interact mm -hmm. through the electromagnetic force but everything has mass. If it's a if it's a thing, it has mass or <laughs> or energy. Right. I'm conflating the two. Um, so uh, dark matter for sure interacts gravitationally, um, and that's that's the only thing we've been able to nail down about it um, about its interactions <laughs> so far. Mm -hmm. Okay, so you're trying to actually detect this uh, like physically or proximally right. yeah exactly we want to detect it here on earth we want to see the effect of an individual dark matter particle hitting something whatever that means um mm -hmm. so that we can learn about 
what that particle is. Um, so as a side note, there are like neutrinos that are flying yes. straight through the earth all right. the time, constantly, yes. like hundreds of thousands of them probably going through yes. us right now as we're speaking. Right. Um, and, but we know that that's not dark matter. Yeah, that, yeah, that's a great question. So I actually, in grad school, I worked on neutrinos for a while, and I stopped doing that because detecting these neutrinos, which, as you said, most of them pass straight through the earth, is actually way too easy. It's just <laughs> boring. So I wanted to challenge. <laughs> so I decided to work on dark matter, which interacts even more weakly with most normal things than neutrinos. And these are to wimps. Answer, oh, yeah, great. So you, you use the term wimp. <laughs> um, WIMP stands for weakly interacting massive particle, and that's one of the leading ideas for what um, what dark matter is. Okay, yeah, um, it's a specific theory of dark matter. The which other one may is, or may not be true. The other one, which came out after, of course, is macho. <laughs> I don't yeah. remember what that is. Mass, um, massive. I forget the a compact halo object, but it's. Machos are pretty much, we've ruled them out by now. Um, oh, okay. It's the idea that it's actually, maybe dark matter isn't a new type of particle. Maybe it's just, uh, I don't know, like black holes or big um, accumulations of normal matter that somehow... Uh, we just couldn't see or something. We just couldn't see. That's right. the macho hypothesis, basically? That's right. Yeah. Okay, so yeah. talk more about the WIMP hypothesis. Yes, definitely. So the the WIMP hypothesis is the idea that there are particles that are at a similar mass to some of the normal normal matter particles that we that we're made up of. So the kind of mass range of WIMPs is between around the mass of the proton to maybe a thousand times the mass of the proton, roughly speaking. There there's a lot of ambiguity in uh, what WIMP exactly means because it's actually a whole class of theories. Mm -hmm. But more or less, it's a type of particle that is kind of similar to normal particles in their mass. Um, and uh, ideally interacts in a way that's observable um, as sort of a... Um, bouncing off of an atom, for example. So this is in contrast to another leading theory of dark matter, which is called axion dark matter, which is basically saying axions are really, really, really low in mass, even compared to an individual normal particle. Um, and you'll basically never have a chance of observing a single one, but they might all kind of move together like a wave. You can think of them as being more like a, a TV or a radio wave in their behavior. Um, and maybe you can pick up these signals from axion dark matter with a cavity that's kind of similar to what you might use, like a microwave cavity, for example. Okay. What is a microwave cavity? <laughs> oh, uh, a microwave. <laughs> Just a so microwave. In your yeah, in your in your microwave um, microwave oven, there's a little box where they create the microwave radiation, mm -hmm. and the mic and that box is called the microwave cavity. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. I was pretty sure microwaves are magic, so I wasn't totally <laughs> sure. Um, but that's they're, cool. they're they're less magic than dark matter, <laughs> <laughs> and way less than dark energy. Yeah, exactly. All right, so uh, to sum up the two main theories that are still around, there's the WIMPs, which are really heavy particles that basically don't interact with anything uh, every now and then maybe, but generally no. And then there's the And if axion. they do, they kind of, they, they bounce off of an atom. Okay. And if they, and then the other side is the axion dark matter, where they're super tiny and they somehow have like a large gravitational field. It's uh, that there's, there's just a bunch of them. And so with, if there are enough of them, 
they can weigh enough to to cause significant gravity and and the way that they interact is more similar to sort of wave motion so instead of thinking okay. the, of them as a bunch of individual particles that might might bounce off of atoms you can think of them more like just uh, you know, the universe is a wash in an ocean of dark matter particles that are all kind of moving. Yeah, that's right. That are all kind of moving together. Okay. I will pretend I understand all of this. And <laughs> great. Um, I will then ask, so what exactly does the LZ experiment do? Yeah, great. Let's get back to that. So we want to do this direct detection of dark matter. Um, but because dark matter interacts so weakly with n normal matter, we need something uh, really big and really sensitive um, that can look for this wimp dark matter that bounces off of atoms. Mm -hmm. So the so you're idea to detect the bounce. Yes, exactly. We're trying to detect this really rare um, collision of dark matter with an atom. So. The way we've come up with doing this is you take several tons of this atom called xenon, mm -hmm. you put it in a big, basically a giant titanium soda can, <laughs> you cool it up a lot so that it condenses, it, it forms a liquid, that just helps you get pack more of these atoms into this giant soda can. Right. You put very sensitive light detectors at the top and bottom so that will help you observe uh, dark matter interactions. And then you put this whole thing about a mile deep underground. Okay. And that is so the, the earth will absorb a bunch of background noise as much as possible. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah. So the reason we put it underground is their cosmic rays, just high energy particles flying. Those neutrinos space. you talked about. Yeah. Neutrinos also. Amongst. Um, <laughs> right. Uh, amongst others. And uh, if you just put this experiment on surface level, um, there'd be so many interactions constantly happening that you couldn't pick out the, the collision of dark matter with a xenon atom. There'd be all of these other collisions with xenon atoms. So hmm. uh, we put it a mile underground uh, in a, this is in a mine, an, an old gold mine actually in South Dakota. Of course. Uh, it was, it ran out of gold and then, uh, it got donated to science. Great. Just like yeah. what I want to happen with my body. <laughs> Perfect. Uh, cool. Yeah. So you put this soda can down in the ground filled with liquid xenon. That's right. Um, how do you know that putting it so far underground, you're not accidentally, um, losing out on potential interactions. Yeah. So there are some models of dark matter, um, where it would actually have a decent chance of bouncing off the rock between in that mile. But most models would have, uh, your average dark matter particle going all the way through. Through, not not just that mile, but all the way through the entire Earth most of the time. So okay. the only way that you actually get um, a signal in your detector is by having a, a bunch of dark matter particles coming through, waiting a long time, and being very good at observing even a single interaction. So what does an interaction look like? Yeah, so in our detector... Um, an interaction will, will basically do two things. Um, the first thing it does is the, when the xenon atom gets hit, um, it will initiate a chemical reaction uh, that, that produces light. So, you know, there are neon flashlights or neon lights where if you run electricity through neon gas, it lights up. Yeah. Xenon is very similar chemically to neon. It's a noble gas and it has similar properties. They actually use xenon in um, headlights for some cars. The stupidly the bright ones? 
Yeah, the stupidly bright oh, one gosh. for Xenon. <laughs> okay. Well, I'm glad there's at least one good use for Xenon. Yeah. Um, oh, so you get it really cold so that it's really dense and so that yes. any dark matter that it happens to be flying through the space is more likely to hit one of these Xenon yes. atoms. Exactly. And then, boom, it makes a flash of light. Your detector right. picks it up. Yeah, exactly. So that's the first the first step. The second step is in addition to light, you can also get um, ionization. So you can get some of the electrons in the atom get ripped off. Um, yeah, they're releasing energy. Yeah, and then we it have... It shows up in my, uh, some, one of my physics for babies books. So I think I can <laughs> use that level. Great, yes. Electron orbitals. Yeah, so so once you get these uh, electrons that get uh, stripped off of the xenon atoms that they used to be orbiting, um, our detector has a strong electric field that will carry those electrons up into the top of the detector where uh, they basically um, get accelerated. Uh, and as they accelerate, they create a similar kind of chemical reaction again that produces light in the xenon. So the particle hits some xenon, some electrons fly off and you like suck them up and then yeah. shoot them down at some more xenon. It, you, you, you suck them up to the top and you accelerate them and that produces a second flash of light. So you, you get two signals. Um, one is, an initial flash of light that happens right when the dark matter hits the atom, the xenon mm -hmm. atom. And then the second one, which has a little bit of a delay from when the electrons make it uh, up to the top of the detector. Um, is it like the same tub of xenon or is there another yeah. guess, soda can? It's all, it's all one, um, one volume. So energy is coming from the dark matter particle the wimp and right. then it hits the thing the electron comes out and then the electron has a certain amount of energy and then the energy goes back into another xenon is that what's happening well we actually add some extra energy that comes from the electric field so we're kind of cheating a little bit in that once you once you have enough energy to rip the electron off the atom mm -hmm. we can then take it from there we can pull the electron up and accelerate it and when it's accelerating it can basically bounce into a bunch of other xenon atoms and create more light and just so the, okay yeah so so that makes us really sensitive um because we can take these single electrons and then turn them into a large light signal so I am assuming that there are still possibly other cosmic background radiation or cosmic waves um, that are going through the soda can every now and then. How do you know how to differentiate between like your standard radiation and uh, these wimps? I just like saying the word wimps. <laughs> that, that's a great question. And that's one of the things that makes these searches really hard. Um, so there are cosmic, uh, cosmic rays that produce backgrounds. There are also trace amounts of radioactive elements um, in just normal material. Yeah, um, bananas. I like, yeah, oh, per perfect. Yeah, <laughs> bananas are a perfect example. They have a little bit of potassium-40, which is mm -hmm. radioactive. Um, you know, it's not harmful, to you or I to eat it, but it's still there. Um, similarly, carbon. I eat twenty of them every day. <laughs> You'd be just fine. <laughs> you may get sick of the bananas, though. Yeah, probably after two. Um, all right, go. Yeah. On. yeah. So, so there. So one of the things that actually makes these experiments so hard is that you have to be very careful to construct everything in the experiment out of really low radioactivity material. Mm -hmm. So you have to go and actually measure trace amounts of radioactivity in everything, all the way down to the bolts that you use to um, 
assemble the detector. Oh, I didn't even thought of all this. Yeah. It's like, we've had, we've had about 20 years of uh, (laughs) prior experiments figuring out these problems that we need to solve. So this, uh, that's one way, um, to help reduce backgrounds in the detector, things that would look like dark matter, but actually aren't. Mm-hmm. Um, another thing, though, is that um, most of these backgrounds, this background radiation, are particles like gamma rays or X-rays, yeah. which interact with xenon by bouncing off of an electron in the xenon. But actually, we think that WIMP dark matter would interact. It's more like a bowling ball, but it's it's going to knock out the entire xenon nucleus all at once. Oh, um, so that actually produces a different response from the xenon than something bouncing off of an electron, uh, and in particular, uh, I won't get into the details, but it changes how much of the first light signal there is relative to how much energy goes into splitting off the electrons, which create that second light signal. So it's important that you have these two steps because the relative amount of energy in one step versus another Mm -hmm. can tell you something about whether it was dark matter or one of these background events. Oh, I see. So just depending on what is hitting the xenon, it reacts differently. Yes, Um, exactly. And you can tell that by measuring the amount of energy from the electron or, I don't know, if it got destroyed, if it got wrecked by a wrecking ball. Yeah, you can look at the energy going into the ionization or the energy that came from the initial flash of light. So you're not, I want to be clear, you're not actually measuring the atom that got hit. Mm -hmm. You're measuring, or or the electron um, directly that got hit. You're measuring the response that the xenon has to that energy. Yeah, the energy that came off of the interaction. Yeah, right, exactly. Cool. Um, How many, so like... How many hits are you getting in a X time period? I don't know. Okay, so I didn't actually explain this. The LZ experiment only recently got constructed. Oh, okay. Um, how how new is it? It's it's quite new. Um, it was sort it's sort of in the commissioning stage, which means uh, we're we're figuring out how it works. So, like, as of recording, it's not even properly, like, up and running yet. Um, yeah, so the LZ experiment was sort of finished being constructed earlier this year, and we expect that sometime in 2022 we'll have the results of our first search for dark matter. Cool. Uh, but it will probably be several years of um, looking for dark matter before we can say for sure um whether we've seen it or whether it's because you're going to get all these interactions and you're going to have to do all sorts of analyses to truly understand exactly what's happening most likely right yeah that's about half of my job is um working with other people to figure out how to do these really precise um analyses of the data there's a, a lot of um cleaning it up and removing backgrounds and making sure we understand um, Mm -hmm. this very complicated machine that took several years to build and a lot of manpower. So this is an odd question, but how long would it take for you to say that this is probably not like dark matter is probably not a wimp? Yeah, that's you have all the good questions, Denver. (laughs) <laughs> I didn't even prep you. <laughs> um, so uh, there are there are lots of different models, and um, particle physics theorists actually are really good at coming up with new ways to say no, no. Actually, 
maybe it's still there. You should keep looking. <laughs> but I would say that um, the kind of detector that I'm working on has a more or less fundamental limit, um, which is when it becomes when the events in the detector become dominated by neutrinos from the sun. So we talked earlier about how neutrinos are um, another kind of particle that very rarely interact with matter. Mm. Um, and it turns out that the sun is basically a giant nuclear reactor, which one of its byproducts is neutrinos. Um, and if you build a bigger detector than ours, or if you wait long enough, um, eventually your uh, ability to search for wimps uh, becomes diminished because you start accumulating these neutrino events that look very similar to wimp dark matter. They also um, scatter off of the xenon nucleus. Um, so as a particle, as these other particles interact with the xenon, uh, is it kind of like each xenon atom can only be privy to one interaction and then it's, I don't know, it sinks to the bottom or it falls apart or maybe it starts interacting with the other xenon? Is that what's happening? Um, the xenon itself actually uh, doesn't have any any memory of this, um, you know, if, it, if, if an electron gets stripped off of it, eventually that electron will get replaced. Just picks another one up. Right. So the problem isn't that we're losing xenon. The problem is that the background from neutrinos actually looks very similar to WIMP dark matter. So if you set up a thought experiment, if WIMP dark matter interacts 10 times um, more than neutrinos, mm -hmm. not, not 10 times more strongly, but there's just enough dark matter that if you combine how much there is with how much it interacts, it ends up bouncing off our xenon more than solar neutrinos. In that scenario, you don't really need to worry about a neutrino background. And that's, that's what we're sort of looking for right now. But if it turns out that dark matter interacts much more weakly, then in fact, we start getting, we start having to worry about this background from neutrinos. And that's the point at which I think many scientists would sort of say, all right, time to pack our bags and try something else. Yeah. So this experiment would not technically be able to say dark matter is not WIMPs, but it would eventually get to a point where we'd say this experiment can't tell us anything new. Yeah. And as an experimentalist, you know, that's sort of what I'm looking for in terms of guidance on what to work on. What is practical? What, what can I spend my effort on that has a good chance of finding something useful? Yeah. Um, you know, the, the, the balance of how much work it is for, the chance of discovering dark matter. So yeah, I would say I, I'll add one other thing, which is that I think a lot of wimp dark matter theories suggest that we're right now sort of entering the regime of being able to look for, um, really interesting dark matter models. So mm -hmm. previous iterations of these kinds of experiments have started to rule out some of these theories, mm -hmm. but in the next five years or so, we'll really be able to explore a lot more of the leading WIMP theories. And so if we don't see something, that will, I think motivate a lot of people to start looking in a different direction in terms of the dark matter theory. Yeah. Even, Decreases. even despite the fact that the experiments will have sort of reached their ultimate limitations. Yeah. It decreases the probability that this is the right way to go. Right. Exactly. And you know, that's one of the things about doing research. You don't know going into it 
what's going to pan out and what isn't. So you have to be willing to just try what you can do and see what happens. Yeah. Science. All right. So for my last question, why do you care about dark matter? Yeah. End with a hard hitting one. So me personally, I am just fascinated by the question of what is out there? What, what, particles exist in the universe and and how do they how do they build this picture i've been describing of what are the rules of nature um so the fact that there's this huge amount of matter way more um dark matter than there is normal matter that we don't we don't know what kind of particle it is Mm -hmm. i just i i want to answer that question (laughs) and it would be amazing to me to be a part of the team that could could get that answer it's 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 a really big question there's there's all this matter out there and you know it feels kind of embarrassing as someone working in the field to not be able to answer that question yeah but i could imagine you know a lot of a lot of your listeners may not have that same kind of inclination and that's totally fine um so can we use dark matter to propel spaceships? <laughs> <laughs> I was going to I was just about to ask what are the practical implications of dark matter? Yeah, can we use dark matter to create portals? Can we create mirror versions of ourselves that are evil? Um, <laughs> the answer to all of those is definitely not. Um, so <laughs> because dark matter is so weakly interacting with normal matter, it's really hard to try and come up with a practical use for the dark matter itself. Right. But I think it's still very worthwhile to do the kind of basic research to study dark matter, even if you don't care about particle physics. And the reason for that is that when you do basic research, you're really pushing the boundaries of what people can do um, as a scientific endeavor. Mm -hmm. So for example, the World Wide Web came out of particle physicists trying to figure out a better way to communicate across countries. That wasn't intended when they were doing the research. It just sort of fell out of it. And now Mm -hmm. everyone uses it. Now it's more valuable and changes the entire world in ways that those people never would have thought about. Right, exactly. When you do this basic research, you can't articulate in advance what's going to come out of it. And that's exciting, but it also makes it kind of a hard sell to funding agencies. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's also but, a little scary. Right. It's also a little scary. And uh, w- one more example of that, um, particle accelerators are used to study particle physics, mm-hmm. um, but it also turns out you can use uh, a miniature version of a particle accelerator to do something called proton therapy which is actually a cancer treatment that is very effective in some special cases. Mm-hmm. Yeah, people did not invent a particle accelerator thinking they were going to treat cancer, but right. they did. <laughs> right. So if you care about curing cancer or the internet, then you should fund particle physics. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much for being on the Green Room Podcast. Um, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Yeah, thanks, Denver. It's been fun. Yeah.